0: another edition of Fighting for the Fade. Wednesday, January 26, 2011. And today we're going to do our light version. Uh, yeah, my schedule is kind of jammed up. That's why I put it in there. It's, uh, it's a lot of work to put the programs together and that light edition, not only does it provide an opportunity for some good teaching, some good lecturing on good theological topics, but it helps me out, too. And, yeah, oh, man, thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program. That dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Now, once a week, I, I, I've, I've given up calling it friday Light because it, it moves. It, it, I, I'm, I guess I'm just going to have to reject and move away from irrational philosophy. Yep. It, it, what's the point of calling it a Friday light if it keeps moving to different days? So today is our light edition. Once a week, we do a light edition of Fighting for the Faith. Sometimes it's on Friday. Some Well, yeah, it it doesn't happen on Friday very often anymore. Ah, it just... It, Let's let's put it this way. It relieves some of the uh, the, the production pressure that exists in uh, putting together this program, uh, The Letter of Mark Journal, and uh, running Pirate Christian Radio, and my postgraduate work. You get what I'm saying. Anyway, we've been working our way through a series of lectures uh, given by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt on the two natures in Christ. We are up uh, to—today we're going to be playing Lecture 13 and 14— in the series, and it, this is just great stuff. And uh, good theology, uh, well-thought-out theology, challenging theology, just great theology. This is this is the kind of stuff that helps you grow. And if you don't have a copy of the book already, go to fightingforthefaith.com, look on the left-hand side of our webpage, you'll see a link there to uh, be able to purchase uh, a copy. Uh, you, 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 I have it going to the Kindle edition, uh, it, which is you know a perfectly fine edition, but uh, you can also uh, purchase hard copy, uh, you know, uh, you know, hardcover edition if you want to. But great theological work, and it this is a college level course, good stuff, and uh, yeah. Anyway, you get what I'm saying. So, but before I dive into it, I want to let you all know that we uh, thanks to a listener, I was able to uh, figure out how do we go about getting the uh, Kindle edition of the Letter of Mark Journal onto your Kindle devices. <laughs> yeah, if you go to fightingforthefaith.com and uh, the, the, uh, in the categories on the left hand side, if you if I don't know when you're listening to this edition of Fighting for the Faith, but oh, on the left hand side it has all the categories listed uh, for the, the the topics and things that we we post there at the website. Uh, in the list, it says Letter of Mark Journal. If you click on that, then it'll take you to, uh, you know, where, the archive to where the Letter of Mark Journal is. And for the for the first edition, I've made it our, our, its own uh, entry onto the website. Uh, it says Letter of Mark, uh, Volume 1, Number 1, Kindle Edition. And uh, it... it you know, Nice. Uh, trying to figure out how do we avoid uh, our Kindle. Uh, those of you who own a Kindle, how do we avoid having to have you guys pay it? You know that nominal fee that Amazon wants to charge for having you use their uploading service for their Whisper Sync or whatever they call it. Anyway, we wor- got the workaround for it. If you own an iPhone or an iPad, okay. Listen carefully. This here's the directions. You go to that. You go to that uh, that post on our website for the Kindle edition of letter of Mark. And what you do is you ser- you open up your iPhone or your iPad, open up your Safari web browser, and then, uh, go to fighting for the find that entry. And then when it, where it says Kindle edition download here, uh, it, on your iPhone or iPad, you, uh, you just click on the link there. What will happen is it will begin to download, and then it will ask you if you want to open up that file in your Kindle software for your iPad or iPhone. Real simple. You just say yes, and blammo, it, it, it downloads and immediately goes into your uh, your Kindle software on your iPhone or iPad. Now, if you own an actual Kindle device, you know, this is slightly different uh, in order to avoid the nominal fee for using the WhisperSync thing, you're going to need to download a free piece of software called Calibre, and I have a link there to uh, to the um, Calibre software that you can download. And which you do basically download the Calibre software, connect your Kindle to your computer, your laptop, or whatever, and using the Calibre software, which you can then do, you download the file. Open it up in Caliber, and then uh, there's a button there that, that allows you to send the file to your, uh, your device, you know, whatever that is. In fact, I think it works with multiple devices, including the Kindle. So that's how you do it and how you avoid having to pay uh, that ridiculous nominal fee that Amazon wants to charge, and then you can read it on your Kindle. Very excited about this. I've mentioned that before, but this is just great stuff that we're able to live in a day where these digital readers make it possible for us to publish good theology, get it out to you into your hands in a usable format, in a readable format, and it feels more like a book and less like a... A, well, a computer document. You understand what I'm saying. Anyway, so without any further ado, here's Dr. Rod Rosenblatt, Two Natures in Christ, lecture number 13. Here we go. And when we're done, we'll pause, pay some bills, and then play lecture number 14. Here we go.
1: All right. Let's go to page, I think it's 6, Roman numeral 3. Did we do the ones that have the passages that deal with the session of Christ at the right hand of the Father? Roman numeral three, I think it is. I asked Jan to edit this, but you've got everything. So we're, it's, um, page eight, Roman numeral three. Yeah. Did we do, did we look at those last time? It's been a while. I can't remember. We've not. All right. Okay, overall, overall, what we're dealing with here is that he's going to do a study of the phrase in the Bible at the right hand of God, Old Testament and New Testament. Why? Because at the time, the charge against us was that though we say we believe in the true Humanity of Christ, um, Christ is locatable. If he's a real man, risen, he's locatable. If you had the three axes in the universe, you could locate him. Where could you locate him? Well, you could locate him just to God's right, at the right hand. And what Chemnitz is going to argue is the way the phrase is used in the Bible, it's not a location. It's a literary way of saying co-equality, co-majesty, co-this, co-that. And he wants to argue that those things were always true of the divine nature of Christ, never changed, even in his state of humiliation, he possessed them, But he wants to argue all of this, the scripture passages argue, was part of his risen human nature, the body of Christ, which of course he still has, and we've talked about that. Nobody's contesting that all of these phrases about the wonders of being at the right hand refer to... Such things as I mentioned, co-equality, co-equal in majesty, all that stuff from Chalcedon is drawn from these passages. But what he's trying to argue here overall is these things we must predicate of the person of Christ, the hypostatic union, and these were all having to do also with his human nature, not just his divine now, if you say, this sounds like it's headed toward the supper, you're right. To put it very bluntly, risen Jesuses do with their bodies whatever they will to do. And you don't judge them by Newton. Now, Newton wasn't born yet, but you get the idea. His body is where he wills it to be. Right? It's not a location. All right. Okay. Um, I don't think we have to do all these, but these would be worth doing sort of daily as just sort of a scripture study in the morning or something over coffee worth looking at. I've printed them all out, though they're just, in Chemnitz, they're just uh, chapter and verse, but I've gone and gotten the the content, like Knave's topical Bible, gone and gotten the content from the electronic edition of the ESV. So, Scripture passages which deal with the session of Christ at the right hand of the Father are pertinent to our discussion. Hebrews 1.3, <coughs> He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Luke 22, seated at the right hand of the power of God. Uh, Psalm uh, 20, verse 6. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He'll answer from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. And so forth and so forth. Uh, Just look for the phrase here, right hand. That's what he's doing. Okay? So take a look at them on your own. Uh, Down at B, 1 Corinthians 15, 25. He must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. From Psalm 110.1. Then the next section, all these again, studies of the occurrence of the phrase right hand or at the right hand or at his right hand. Uh, just verse after verse after verse after verse. Okay. Uh, then over at 3, let's see. Or, let's see. Uh, oh, here, let me, let me quote some of the ones. You, I think you now have this in your edition. Some of Chemnitz's comments. Um, A4. Right hand does not indicate a member or part of God. Ugh. It indicates the power and activity of God by which he drives back his enemies, is present with his own, hearkens to them with his grace, his blessing, his help, his liberation, his defense, his preservation, his salvation, as shown in his miracles and all his glorious divine works. Here the Lutheran is going to argue that uh, all of these things were shown by his Miracles culminating in his resurrection from the dead. It does not become the right hand of God here in time. There are no commingling of natures. Uh, The distinction of the natures remains even after the union. But the human nature lodges within Christ and sits at the right hand of God because it's been united with the divine nature of the logos, which is at the right hand of God. After laying aside his humiliation in the exaltation, it's been brought into full and manifest use of the power of the right hand of God. Okay. Uh, Another one from Chemnitz. The Father does all things through the Son and through his right hand naturally and essentially. The deity of the Logos works through the assumed nature. Not essentially, but personally, because of the personal union. Quote, in brief... The session at the right hand of God is explained and clarified in the preceding scripture passages that deal with the omnipotence in heaven and on earth, which is given to Christ according to his human nature. And then all the passages on the right hand. Uh, On that uh, B, 1 Corinthians 15, 25 and Psalm 110, Chemnitz, to sit does not refer to his reclining position, his body's reclining, or to the occupancy of a particular place. Seated at God's right hand refers to his power and to the glorious administration of his office, king, high priest, and Messiah, and his, to his dominion over all things. That's according to the human nature because of the hypostatic union. Not In the divine nature, he had all those things forever, even when he was in his state of humiliation. Then the list at C, Chemnitz. Scripture speaks in this way of Christ's session at the right hand of God so that it may show clearly that also with respect to his human nature, according to which he was crucified, dead, and raised again, Christ is placed at the right hand of the majesty and power of God. Don't dump the human nature. Uh, All of these are headed in the same direction, just... Passage after passage after passage after passage. Um, then in, uh, over at uh, C12, terms such as in heaven, in the heavens, in the highest, do not restrict the right hand of God to one place, nor do they imply that Christ, according to his human nature, is sitting at the right hand of God in only one place in heaven. Uh, let me, I saw a typo there. Just a minute. Nor do they imply. Okay, um, and again, then a long list of above the heavens, far above all the heavens. Uh, high above all the nations, above the It's a study of how that phrase is used in, uh, in the Bible. And again, he's contending what I told you. This is Christ according to both natures. One Christ, the one where the hypostatic union has joined forever the divine and the human natures. Okay? Four, other passages that deal with the communication of the divine glory or majesty. Again, some statements from Chemnitz. The outcry arises when they hear the phrase divine majesty. Say they, this cannot be attributed to or considered proper to any created thing, certainly not to the, the assumed nature. Chemnitz, we don't say this as if it's a commingling. Um, we would even be willing to grant that the body of Christ... Through the ascension has been translated into the state of the glorified bodies, that in this state it possesses first place among all the saints, but this kind of glory does not satisfy the statements of Scripture. It's greater than that. Okay? And then the the passages from uh, the Transfiguration, uh, Luke 9 and uh, 2 Peter 1, both references to the Mount of Transfiguration. You'll find that some of these passages repeat, but I just took them mechanically. If he listed them, they went in again. They went in again. Okay, you'll see that and be able to say to yourself, "Oh yeah, he used that one in the section before." I just put them all in. Okay. G. Chemnitz. Thus, the statements of Scripture show first that the glory and majesty which are described as having been given to Christ in time must be understood not according to his divine nature, but according to his human nature. The session at the right hand is described as having taken place in time, even though according to the divine nature he'd this majesty from eternity. So he's focusing on don't leave out his body, huh? his assumed human nature. All Christians agree about The passages that talk about Jesus' divine nature, uh, not in our day, but in his day. But what was contended was that this had nothing to do with his body. And Chemnitz is going up against it with every gun he's got. Second, passages of scripture show that this is not a created thing. But the actual divine majesty and his glory on whose throne and at whose right hand Christ is described as sitting in time and according to his human nature. Okay, and then a lot of passages again on the right hand over at J. The Since we must find mercy and seek aid at the throne of Christ, it's certainly in the interest of the church to know on which seat or on which throne she ought to seek Christ. And at it, it, uh, O, oh, the one who can have pity on us is sitting at this, on the seat of divine majesty in his office of Savior, an office which pertains to both natures. Uh, and again, the passages from the Transfiguration um, and from Hebrews, uh, those you can do on your own. And then on, on, page, on mine, it's page 17. Double A. He was regarded by many as a mere man. He sought, therefore, to be glorified in such a way that this glory might manifest and exercise itself, shine forth, glow, and be seen in and through the assumed nature. Okay? So you can see all of these are going in the same direction passage after passage after passage, that Jesus is co-equal with the Father, co-equal in all glorious things, and especially according to his body, blood. Huh? This is why, this is the background to the supper. It's the background to the supper. Now, amazingly, I found with White Horse Inn listeners, the American evangelicals, the ones who are thinking... Um, what I never expected to see in all the letters that come to the White Horse Inn is from evangelicals who are wistful, longing that there be something going on in the supper other than just the remembrance, that there's actually something going on. That surprised me. I thought they'd just say it as, this is another dumb thing the Lutherans hold, but I haven't found that to be the case they sort of wish that they could laminate our view of the supper onto their evangelicalism. Uh, I had Westmont students who wanted to try to, do, try to do that, and I said, go ahead and try. But I think you'll discover that these guys thought this through pretty well. Calvin as a system, Luther as a system, Wesley as a system. You'll be hard-pressed hard to take one thing you happen to like and eclectically laminated onto your system. I think you'll find it won't work. The background of the supper is this stuff. According to his human nature. And that's why pastor can say, take and eat. This is the true body of Christ given into death for your sin, Rod. Take and eat. And of the cup, this is, Rod, this is the true blood of Christ which was shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Now, Dr. Horton knows this, that the fight begins here in Christology. And he's right that it works itself out in the supper later on. Okay? All right, let me stop with that and we can open up for some questions. It's the same theme, you know, over and over and over and over again. Huh? And it's the background to what we do at supper. It's in Christology.
2: Yeah, I've got a question. Uh, do the evangelicals still subscribe to that uh, belief that they held at one time, or still do maybe, that at communion they are
1: literally transported That's to... That's the Calvinist. Oh, okay. Where you, Jesus can't be in more than one place at one time, but right. you can. Uh, Mike, Bu- <laughs> Mike Boucher calls it the elevator theory. Um yeah, that's, that's the Reformed. In the evangelical circles, it's apple juice and crackers time. You know, and you get really, really serious, and the kids don't understand why everybody got really, really serious. But there's nothing going on. It's just you're remembering intensely and being grateful for Christ having died for you, which is fine as far as it goes, but it doesn't go far enough. That's one piece of it.
3: Mike? Well, just a comment on that. right? I can understand, though it would be wrong, why the evangelicals symbolize the Lord's Supper. right? It's kind of weird because when you look at evangelicalism, all the passages, like the book of Revelation, they'll want to take that literally, even though there's obviously symbolism everywhere. And then the other passages that seem to be literal, they want to symbolize. Yeah. But, but I still can understand the logic in that. I can see looking at a passage mm-hmm. and wanting to do that. Mm-hmm. But right when you look at the uh, Calvinist view of that, what passage is going to give you this elevator thing going up and down? I mean, how are you going to defend that and still believe sola scripture? Yeah. I...
1: yeah, I don't know. I... There's a lot that can go on under the rubric of sign, seal, and covenant. Um. I don't know. I was amazed to find out from Dr. Horton that the Reformed believer actually believes that they can find the Presbyterian form of church polity in the New Testament text. Now, that just blew me away. What? You know, Lutherans have had bishops, God help us. Um, Over here, the Saxons, it was going to be congregational polity. You know, never again with a bishop that delivers an unbelieving pastor to us. We're never going to give them that kind of power again. Uh, one of the things coming up in Houston is they're going to market that, uh, from what I hear, they're going to market that the power be taken from the congregation and we'll have the equivalent of bishops, not district presidents. There's st- stuff going on like that, a power grab, and I hope it gets stuffed right up their snoots. Um, <laughs> But I was amazed when Mike said of the evangelical, well, he has no ecclesiology, I nodded my head. Then I found out what the Reformed actually hold. You actually think you can find Presbyterian polity in the New Testament text? I mean, even your Reformed New Testament scholar, Leon Morris, says a lot of these words like episcopus and presbyterus, we're not sure, diaconus we're pretty sure of, from Acts 6, but the words we translate elder or bishop, those are not, and this is a New Testament scholar talking, a a Reformed one, Reformed Episcopal, Leon Morris. And he said, we're not too sure what these words mean. Uh, And I think that's, you know, that's more what they should have said. We're not sure. Lutherans will take both episcopus, we translate bishop, and presbyterus, we translate elder, and both of them refer to a pastor of a local congregation. And it's a defensible position. I had to sort of learn this when I came into Missouri. I was serving as an, as an interim pastor. There was an empty pulpit at Hephetha Lutheran in Anaheim Hills. And a young vicar had come there, and the pastor wished him well, said he'd just joined the army chaplaincy and was taking off that week. And the vicar felt the usual knocking of the knees as I would do. Holy smokes, I'm not a pastor, I'm a vicar. Now what? So I arrive at the church office. He's faced the other way, got a collar on, and I come in to introduce myself, and Gary turns around and said, Bishop, I'm so glad you're here. Well, he was on Missouri speak accurately, and I came out of the ALC, and I looked behind me to see if Lauren Kramer was behind me. <laughs> but that's Missouri speak. huh, Bishop, it's so good to have you here. Well, it's equivalent to pastor. And there's every linguistic right to do that. Now, I never do because I hate all bishops. But <laughs> it's, a, it's a defensible position. right? Huh? All bishops are from hell. (laughs) You think you have trouble with the annual congregational meeting and congregational polity, and I understand. But there's worse. Elect a bishop. You'll learn the hard way. Um, And I hope this isn't also what it was in the ELCA where the bishop owns your brick and mortar and you don't. That thing needs a wooden stake driven through its vampire heart. I'm not. I'm not interested in in uh, the politics of it. But at certain points, it, I get interested. <laughs> really, I'm going to have a bishop, and he owns the building, huh?
2: It's a little hard to relate to the uh, concept of a right hand and uh, of of God and. Uh, some of the uh, revelation language yes. that goes along with this. Can you explicate that a little bit? And then what's on God's left hand, for
1: instance? <laughs> I don't know if that's a mixing of categories. I, I said what I, what I think Kenitz is saying here, that th- using all of those passages, he's saying it's co-equal in majesty, co-equal in glory, co-equal in everything, Chalcedon language. Um, or to put it in the way I put it to students in analytic philosophy, whatever, whatever it is to be God, Jesus was fully that. Now, in the state of humiliation, like a bomb bag, he held it in check most of the time. But it would flash out enough that we got evidence that we didn't have to believe this blindly uh, in miracle after miracle after miracle. But it wasn't as if it was always on display. It was enough that we have grounds to believe it. Um, I don't know how that links with Uve's right hand, left hand rule. I, I that I'm learning right hand, left hand from Uve and and Charles Mansky because I got nothing of it in seminary, a liberal seminary or a conservative seminary, either one, zero. Um, But I was delighted to find out that the right hand is Pastor Rohde or Pastor Hodel preaching the gospel from the pulpit, getting the bread to my mouth, sticking with their script, getting the cup to my lips and sticking to their script, absolving me, and that's the extent of the right-hand kingdom. Everything else is left. What do you mean left? Including what? Districts, district presidents, synods, and the whole machinery. It is all left kingdom. And I thanked Uwe and Charles for that because all of a sudden I had the category for thinking of all those guys the way I think of them. I just didn't have the category. (laughs) It's all left kingdom. It's dailies, Chicago, back rooms filled with cigar smoke. It's straight power and needs to be dealt with as such.
2: I've been doing something dangerous lately. I've been reading. Oh, dear. Yeah, I, I, on, on some of this stuff. And I was, I've been coming across uh, a term within Lutheran circles, spiritual body, and, and pertaining to yeah. explanations of some of what's going on here with Chemnitz's, but, but they keep using a term spiritual body. You know,
1: it's in Scripture, but I don't know. There aren't many parallel passages to that. You know, it, it is a biblical phrase, but I'd have to work myself at it. Uh, usually,
2: uh, you know, I haven't found that once in Chemnitz. I don't know. I'd have to look myself. It seems that the, the, there's a Chemnitz is striving for, uh, a, you know, a, a fleshly Christ, yes. a bodily Christ, yes. a, a, and not spiritualizing, et cetera. Yes. The location thing here—he's—he's he's trying. It seems that he's—we're dealing with terms accommodations to language. Um, for location, right hand, etc., but he's trying to show that this relates to power and a right. position. Co-majesty. Co-majesty, and I'm wondering because you said this is a backdrop to the supper, the that that the part of maybe the explanation for for the presence, mm-hmm. however you define that, mm-hmm. um, that that this that this this word somehow spiritual body, this term somehow plays into that. It could be that it does, and I'm just
1: ignorant of it. It isn't the language of chemnitz. When we get into the chapter on the supper, it isn't the language he's going to use. But I'd have to look myself.
2: And it has to do also, there's, uh, and I'll have to get that to you, something on ingesting too. Well, it is going to have to do with the mouth. Mm -hmm. When Mike brings me the latest
1: Reformed, obscure Reformed confession and says, could we get together here? And I say, before I read it, Mike, what goes into my mouth? And he said, well, bread and wine. I said, I'm not going to sign your confession. You just answered my question. They'll never say yes to that. There's not going to be agreement. They're confessionally bound against our position. It just ain't going to change. What you, what you, uh, your question reminded me that I brought along for show and tell one I mentioned very, very early on in the course. Here's St. Athanasius on the incarnation of the word This is the one from St. Vladimir's Press in New York, the one that C.S. Lewis calls a galloping translation. Um, This is reputed to be the best book on the person of Christ in the history of Western Christianity, and it is utterly simple to read compared to what you're working with here. Um, St. Athanasius, On the Incarnation or On the Incarnation of the Word marvelous stuff. And the second greatest work in the history of the whole Western Christian church is the one we're working with from Chemnitz. Anyway, I brought this along so you could take a look at it on the Incarnation, St. Athanasius.
3: Rob, my question is, you know, when I first started looking at your outline, mm-hmm. the first thought that came to me was, well, who wants to say otherwise? It never occurred to me that you want, oh. you'd want to interpret sits of the right hand in any other way than oh. what it's being interpreted now. We're so my question is, who is the audience that Chemnitz has in mind that he's writing to at this point? Is the it Calvinism? The Reformed. It's the Reformed, yeah. Uh-huh.
1: And In fact, when this was done at Trent, they had read... And they said of the Augsburg Confession, we have no problem with your view on the doctrine of the person of Christ. Why? Because it wasn't innovating. Huh? They recognized. From the creedal faith, we haven't got a problem with you here. Well, always. Anything to do with flesh. Oh. Uh, By the way, I've discovered some stuff people have forwarded to me. Uh, Some marvelous stuff on today's defense of Gnosticism, the Gnostic Gospels, and all. Man, is that getting clobbered, and does it ever deserve it? All right. Uh, The next section of this will probably close off this 24, but 24 is where the marbles are, this chapter. That's why I'm doing it in such great detail. Then later we'll have one devoted to the Supper itself, but we're through 24 chapters. There's a total of 33, and I don't do all the ones. Some of them are compilations of sayings of the fathers. I don't do those. But we're within striking distance of being at the end of Chemnitz's volume. Okay? I'll finish this one up for you next time, Lord willing. So, thanks for your attention. Hope I didn't hold you over. Uh, see you next time, Lord willing.
0: All right, we're going to pause right there. We're going to pay some bills, and then we're going to uh, continue on with lecture number fourteen in the uh, series on the two natures in Christ. Uh, I always learn something when I uh, when I listen to Dr. Rosenblatt. I, I, always, always, always something. And uh, I think he has the right uh, posture towards the reformed. It's um, uh it, it, that uh, once the calvinists get to heaven they'll be lutherans i mean that's i think that's just the greats. <laughs> we've got some significant differences our confessions uh there's a lot of common ground and there's some stuff that uh the reality is is that those are those are um where there isn't common ground those are battles that are worth fighting at the moment though i think we got bigger fish to fry yeah so uh you know i'll i'll take a calvinist in my foxhole any day <laughs> oh man alright we are up on our first break if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith you could do so my email address talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook it's facebook.com forward slash piratechristian or you can follow me on Twitter my name there piratechristian we'll be right back
1: If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs>
4: God, How can I help you? Hello. I received a Build-A-God certificate for my birthday, so I'm here to build my own deity. Oh, this has got to be so exciting for you. Oh, it really is. Okay, let's get started. The first thing we have to do is determine whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Men are pigs anyway. She has to be female. Great choice. Now we have to select some of the attributes of your goddess. What do you provide? Do you want her to be kind, loving, compassionate, just, angry, righteous, wrathful? The goddess I believe in would only be loving and kind. Perfect. Now, is there any kind of sin that needs tending to by your goddess? Sin? You know, things like lying, cheating, stealing, murder, homosexuality. Well, I definitely want my goddess to be gay-affirming. And sin itself just feels so negative. I'm a good person, and I think my goddess will think everyone else is too. Oh wonderful, your goddess is coming along beautifully. Now we have to get to the difficult questions. Does your goddess offer an afterlife? Yes, my goddess would let everyone go to heaven, except for Hitler, Genghis Khan, my good-for-nothing ex-boyfriend. Oh excellent, excellent! Now for the final step, you have to name your goddess. Hmm. I think I'm going to name her Jesus. Oh, wonderful! That's what everyone names their God.
0: No no no. Alright, we're back. Warning. This program will most likely cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church. Especially if your pastor's not giving you the goods, you know, like the gospel, Christ and crucified for your sins. Yeah, yeah, just, just saying. Need to remind you all, fighting for the faith is Listener-supported radio, that means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially. This is a, this is a partnership, and uh, you know, I, I cannot stress this enough. And you're thinking, a, you know, a partnership? A, you know, a, mi- a ministry partnership? You bet your bippy that's exactly how this works. So here's, here's my end of it. Are you ready? Here's what I do. I do the production work, I do the research, I do the preparation, I record the program, I pr- produce the program, I d- make it all available for you, uh, and what you do is is that you download the program, you listen to the program, you laugh, you learn, you cry, you grow, you're challenged, and as a result of that, you say, "You know?" I would like for Chris to keep doing what he's doing so that I can keep doing what I'm doing. And so I'm going to partner with Chris and Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And the way I'm going to do that is to visit fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of those two friendly yellow buttons. That See, that's how this works. Partnership and uh, it just it makes it a lot easier when we partner together so you know you can sit you can sit there and go uh, well how much do i need to uh, support you chris well i'm glad you asked that question no gift is too small and at the fighting for the faith website uh, you have the option of either joining our crew or uh what you can do is uh, make a one time donation when you click on the join our crew button what you're doing is signing up to automatically on a monthly basis contribute Six dollars ninety-five cents. That's it. It's. I mean, we're talking. Uh, you know. You know. Basically, a Starbucks Venti coffee of some kind. You know, just a little bit. Le- you know, that's about the the cost of it. And what does that do? Well, it does a lot because the more people that join our crew and sign up for that automatic $6.95 every month contribution, what it does is it levels out our giving in in such a way that we can depend month to month upon that those monies coming in so that we can budget properly. We don't get these weird distortions like this month that we're way up and this month we're way down. And, and you know, it's writing the uh, – uh, the ministry roller coaster, if you would. No, no, no. We 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 try, we're, we try to avoid the roller coaster, and uh, it just it takes a lot of stress off of me. and makes it so that we can budget and plan and think about our growth, think about how we want to spend our money. Uh, in you know, as we continue to grow, for you know, we got licensing fees, we got royalty fees we have to pay. We have broadcasting fees. We have uh, hosting fees for our websites. We have internet fees for our bandwidth. I mean. Yeah, and so and, and as our audience continues to grow and it continues to grow at an amazing clip, thank you all for listening. But what happens is, as it grows, so do our expenses. And so, if you haven't joined our crew yet, please, 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 please do so. Now, some of you are asking about the uh, Pirate Cove. I, I've got. Uh, I'm going to be announcing something regarding the cove coming up shortly, and I'll explain that later, but I'm not going to talk about it right now. You've noticed I've kind of laid off the Cove talk because I've been trying to rework how we do... Uh, you know what, what? What's the upsell, if you would, for those who join our crew? And I've and, and based upon where we're going with our publishing and our journal and things like that, I've got the perfect solution, but I'm not ready to unveil it yet. So stay tuned on that. Now, if you want to make a one-time contribution, the way you do so is by clicking on the donate button, and then um, and you fill out that all out, or you can make your gift payable to. This is write a check, make it payable, fightingforthefaith.com. Send it to. Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And, and uh, you know, then it'll get here, and that's the other way to do it. So, anyway, I, I do have uh, news regarding the Cove. <sighs> you know, and I got, when, when am I going to announce this? Hopefully by the end of the week, if not early in, in next week, I'll talk about what we're doing uh, regarding uh, our, our, uh, our crew members in the cove, because uh, we, you know, there's a value add that we're going to be... We're going to change things up a little bit because of... Anyway, it, it's hard to explain, but anyway, stay tuned. So, all right, we're ready for the next lecture on the Two Natures in Christ, and uh, this is uh, lecture number 14. Here, again, is Dr. Rod Rosenblatt.
1: All right, um... I am in my usual chaos that comes when finals week begins. Uh, the way that other professors have been able to avoid that, has they've never told me how they do that. So even though I've been in the ed biz for 30 years, it's the same chaos for me at the end of every semester, and uh, I'm in that now. <coughs> As we look through the section we're going to look through today. We are going to be closing off the chapter that we've spent time on because it's where all the marbles are. He's repeated over and over again um, the themes that he's dealt with earlier. And this whole chapter is devoted to passages. You've seen the extent to which I've I've gone in and grabbed them out of the electronic edition of the ESV and pasted them in. Uh, In Chemnitz, they're just references. And I thought, now I'm going to go get them so that people have got them in front of them. So I pasted in uh, from the electronic ESV the, the full text of what he had only references to. Anyway, in this chapter that we're finishing today... Basically, what he's doing is what we've seen him coming to through the whole book. And that is that without equating the two natures, um, without confusing them, he is going to argue like crazy that the deity of Christ shows forth through his body, through his humanity, and he's going to use passages to do it. We saw that last time, blood by its very nature doesn't cleanse from sin. Then why does this blood cleanse from sin? And he wants to argue that every single time. It isn't inherent in blood in general, it's Christ's blood, and here's what the scriptures say, and here's why. So overall, the chapter has to do with what is called... The genus of majesty, that's uh, the third of three, and the species above that, or the, the category above that, is what's called the communication of the attributes. That is that these are not walled off. The two natures of Christ are not walled off as the Nestorian said, where he's true God and true man, but they're in watertight compartments. That's what he wants to argue against. He wants to say the deity of Christ, according to the passages, shows forth through his body, manifests itself or shows itself through his body. We've done passage after passage on that. Uh, so that's overall what we're doing here. All right. Other scripture passages. Fifth, passages which speak of the anointing of the Spirit and that these refer to the anointing of the human nature of Christ. Now, he'll grant that there are anointings, but he wants to argue from this one that it would be trivial if the Spirit anointed the Son um, only according to his divine nature. It'd be unneeded. So he's going to argue that the son being anointed by the spirit has to do also with his human nature, not just his divine. Middle uh, D. Adam through the fall lost the Holy Spirit and the flesh because of its depravity was not able to contain the spirit. But in the person of Christ... Human nature was again anointed with the spirit, not in small measure, but in such a way that he exercises all of his divine powers in his human nature. I added the italics, and then all of the passages that refer to that. Um, take a look, see if there's some you want to want to ask about here. Hmm. He would, would of course, defend that the divine nature of Christ didn't need an anointing. The divine nature was the divine nature. So why do we have these passages? Well, he says, because Christ was both divine and human. So don't leave out his body, his blood, his whatever, corporeal nature. Okay? Okay? All right, then let's turn over to page 18, sixth. Passages referring to the wisdom and knowledge of Christ. Again, according to his divine nature, he is wisdom itself, possesses omniscience, etc. But according to his human nature, um, then he uses all the passages, particularly the ones from Luke. Huh? that Jesus grew in wisdom and was filled with wisdom, Luke 2, "Thus thus also the fullness of the divine wisdom and knowledge dwelt personally in the assumed nature, in and through which it manifested itself more and more. And again, Chemnitz, as a result and because of his humiliation, that's the state of humiliation, his human nature could be ignorant of certain things and could increase in wisdom. But now, after he laid aside his humiliation, um, and here he's going to talk about the fullness of that. I don't know that that's the best explanation of some problematic passages, but I'm not going to uh, introduce those now. And then the passages, some of which you'll be familiar with uh, uh, already. Take a look at the passages on your own. These are especially found, you know, they're they're book, There's book after book after book at borders about the lost years of Jesus. Um, Does scripture give us any information? A little in Luke. And because there's very little, speculative Americans will fill in the blanks with creative imagination and write books on it. Most of those were done in the 19th century, I think. Anyway, save yourself some money. But do read the passages. Um, There's some that are especially uh, pregnant. Uh, on, the, on page 19. Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And he said, Rabbi, you are the king of Israel. Huh? Um, all right, so... Take a look at those. Seventh, passages referring to the vivifying life. Now, this is a kind of a theological way of saying only God gives life to the spiritually dead. But if you read the passages, this has been given to Jesus. He has been given the power to grant life to dead, uh, to sinners. And so he lists those passages. And this applies not just to Jesus divine nature, but to his assumed humanity. Again, that life-giving ability was given to him as son of man. Okay? The flesh of Christ was made life-giving, uh, received the power to give new life, uh, makes alive. Uh, Chemnitz, the flesh is not life-giving by itself, just like the blood is not, in general, um, able to forgive sin, but because this individual came down from heaven, and because the deity of the Logos does not restore and impart life to the world by itself, but in the incarnate state, in, with, and through the assumed nature. Therefore, the flesh of Christ is said also to give life. Um, So you take a look at the passages uh, on your own. And again, he's driving for one particular point. That is, don't read these passages as if they refer only to Christ's divine nature. Uh, they refer to the whole Christ, corporeal included. Okay? See the passages on your own. Okay, over on the bottom of 21, 8th, Executing Judgment. Only God judges, but the passages say this executing of judgment has been given over to the Son of Man, John 5:27, and he, God, has given him, the Son, Christ, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Thus he, Christ, will judge the living and the dead not only according to his divine nature, but also according to, in, with, and through his assumed human nature, um, and then did I quote? Did I include Acts seventeen thirty one? Yes, on the top of page twenty two, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Trying doing that in an audience of philosophers. That's Mars Hill, okay? Uh, And then passages that have to do again with that the power of judgment has been given to Christ also according to his humanity, not just according to his deity. Therefore, Christ has, according to both natures, the power of executing judgment. Ninth. Passages which speak of Christ's power to cleanse hearts and consciences from sin. No mere human is competent to do that. Cleansing hearts and consciences from sin is a peculiar possession of God. And then he's going to use passages to say, Christ brings also his human nature to this cleansing. Um, Passages on Christ demonstrating this by miracle. One that occurs to me is the paralytic. In Mark, and we've talked about it before. The friends who can't get through the crowds with their paralyzed friends, so they put him on a, on a stretcher and they go up on the roof, pull off the tiles, and lower him down into the room. Um, and Christ comes to him, and the first thing he says is, Be of good cheer, my son, your sins are forgiven. What do they mumble in the back of the room? Who can forgive sins but God? Were they correct? They were correct. And at the close of it, of that pericope, first of all, Jesus looks at them and says, Why are you reasoning thus in your hearts? For which is easier to say, not to do, which is easier to say, Your sins be forgiven, or rise, take up your bed and walk? Which is easier to say, your sins be forgiven. Why? It's invisible. It's invisible. But in order that you may may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, rise, take up your bed, and go home. And he did. He linked the invisible with the visible. Hmm? Thank God, um, for some of us, especially those in the sciences, this happens over and over and over again. Um, this is total catastrophe uh, for those uh, other Lutheran synods where you find that less than rigorous position that uh, says, I believe the Bible's as full of of holes as Swiss cheese with regard to things testable, but I totally believe it's the word of God on things theological. Huh? Uh Uh-uh. And thank God we don't have to get into that mess. Uh, Jesus said one time, if I tell you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And that's true at more levels than one. In other words, if we don't have a place where God touches earth in a testable way, uh, we're in trouble. At least I am. Uh, Or think of Elijah on Mount Carmel. Um, don't ever let anybody tell you that the Hebrews were unscientific idiots. Um, In the account of Elijah, they were going off into worship of Baal, and finally, uh, it comes to a contest. You set up your sacrifice, I'll set up mine. So the priests of Baal set up their sacrifice, and run around and dance and cut themselves and do whatever priests of Baal do. And Elijah's on the sidelines yelling, Yell louder, your God is in the outhouse relieving himself. He can't hear you. <laughs> Nothing happens and Elijah sets up the, the sacrifice and just to, for a little extra has him pour water on it so it's not very ignitable. And fire comes down from heaven and burns the pants off the priests of Baal And the brilliant Israelites conclude, duh, the Lord is God. (laughs) Um, The linkage between the invisible and the the visible. And in philosophical circles, Dale will back me up on this. Um, If you, or those of you in the sciences, if you come in to your physics prof and he's quizzing you about your research and you happen to say to him when he asks you what sort of data if you find it will show your theory to be erroneous and you say well that's part of the wonderful thing about things about my theory no matter what the data is it vindicates itself (laughs) he will he will roust you out of the program and he'll have every right to do that the, the Bible makes itself vulnerable here, and particularly 1 Corinthians 15. It is factually overthrowable in principle. If Christ be not risen, we are of all most to be pitied. So don't ever, as an Orthodox Lutheran, put yourself on the side of, well, there are many kinds of truth, and some are poetic, and some are scientific, and some are rational, and so forth. Uh, Don't push that too hard. Um, God himself, with regard to Old Testament prophets and with regard to the incarnate Christ, placed himself into the human sphere such that, in principle, um, the faith was overthrowable. Now, I don't have time to digress as to why that's a good thing, not a bad one. Uh, I have more time with my students on campus to try and drum that into their heads. And unfortunately, most of those going into church work have avoided every science class they could possibly avoid and every math class. So it's especially difficult uh, when they've, they've taken a particular curriculum where there are not right and wrong answers. But... Uh, With those who are salvageable, I take a crack at it. See the point? All right, rather long digression. Amen, Susan? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, The New Testament is... And by the way, most religions aren't. We're almost in a class of one here, where it's factually overthrowable. Not true of any of the Eastern religions. You can maybe say Judaism perhaps Islam in some kind of a way, but the list is a short one where, where Popper's stuff about falsification holds true. But Christianity is one of them. It invites it by the text itself. <coughs> All right, so, um, this also has been true, the power of judgment. It has been given to him, not according to one nature, but according to the whole person, both natures. Executing judgment. Ninth. Oh yeah, we we got to that. Uh, the power, the passages which speak of Christ's power to cleanse hearts and consciences from sin. All right. Um, Hebrews 9 14, 1022. I hope I printed those out for you. Um, not that the blood of Christ of and through itself or by itself in the abstract has power to forgive sins. Blood doesn't. But it expressly mentions the blood of Christ so that we may understand that Christ's assumed nature also has this power and is not to be excluded. Um, Yeah, there are a whole bunch of them. You can read those uh, on your own. But Mark beforehand, the point that he's trying to make with them, that is that in the case of Christianity, uh, this particular blood actually does that kind of cleansing and we're not just talking about a divine Christ whose divine nature does this and we know that really from just reading that blood doesn't have to do with divine natures yeah? that, that's kind of, we get used to that from reading uh, there's one passage in Acts that talks about the blood of God which I would think would get more attention from evangelicals than it gets Um, That's an odd way to talk. Anyway, read the passages looking for that in particular. All right, over on page 25. Tenth, passages which refer to the duties, I'd say works of Christ, as propitiator, mediator, intercessor, head, high priest, king, and savior, Refer not only uh, to Christ according to the one but also according to the other nature we 're in keeping with his person, not only according to the one but also the other nature, so that in the case of these duties, the works of Christ, the person has his actions and activities in through uh, both in and through both natures. Um, Christ carries on and completes these works, I say not by his divine nature alone by itself, but in communion with his assumed human nature. In order that the assumed human nature might be able to cooperate in these activities, it not only possesses its own natural properties or infused created gifts, but has the true divine majesty and power of the Logos personally united with it. Um, Same theme over and over and over and over and over. This is why that historic confessional Lutheran theology is the least Gnostic theology you'll find on the market. So much so that many fellow Protestants are kind of offended by it, or think we're kind of stupid. Huh? That we're always talking about the corporeal aspect of the one Christ, divine and human, and they can't understand why we can't transcend discussing uh, this human stuff. So, in those situations, you really do have something to contribute. Um, the the mainline evangelical is, is very vulnerable to Gnostic. You might have uh, seen or read Dr. Horton's book, In the Face of God. And what he was doing there was illustrating in evangelicalism how much Gnostic junk has crept in. One of the chapters was entitled, Are Your Hymns Too Spiritual? (laughs) Lutherans are way on the other side of that one. More than the Calvinists, believe me. Um, And uh, Luther, they tried to dislodge Luther from this, especially with regard to baptism and the supper, and he was absolutely immovable. Uh, As I mentioned before, some of his friends, Lutheran friends, said, you know, if you could take the edge off that, we'd have a lot more people who would talk to us, and Luther would have none of it. Absolutely none. Uh, Eat this for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this for the forgiveness of sins. Why? Because the Bible says this. That's in the background of all of what Chemnitz is doing here. So, in these saving works... He is not doing them simply by his divine nature, but also with the human. So that's why you're looking at the passages. Um, The human nature playing its part in the things which actually save us. And you may recognize that from Hebrews. I hope you do. That's part of what Hebrews is getting at. That he, apart from sin... Uh, assume to himself our very natures in order that he would be our brother and would share in all of our temptations and so forth and so forth. Um, So, all right. Uh, He does that in detail. Let's see. Go over to page 28 with me. Passages which refer to the church as it practices the divine worship of Christ. These refer not only to his divine nature, but include the whole person uh, as well. That is, when it believes in Christ as its Redeemer, Head, King, High Priest, and Savior, and praises its hope and confidence in him, adores, invokes, worships, fears, serves, praises, and glorifies him. This refers not only to his divine nature, but includes the whole person, and thus the assumed nature. For the works of the Savior pertain to the person according to both natures. Um, All right, you can take a look at the passages on that as well. Those go over through page 30. Let's look at the summary, and then I'll open it up for discussion. Chemitz. Last page, 31. I wanted to gather together and utilize the chief passages of Scripture as testimonies regarding the communication of the Majesty, both for the sake of order and clarity, and in order that when we've examined them, we might have the explanation and witness of Scripture. For the practice of studying all these statements is surest, safest, and the clearest way to proceed. We should particularly note three points in these verses. One, the all-sufficiency and perfection of which the Scripture passages speak have been given and communicated in time to Christ, not according to his, the divine nature alone, which has all things from eternity, but according to the assumed human nature. Two, Scripture predicates not only created gifts or finite and infused qualities as being given and communicated to the human nature in Christ above and beyond all, uh, beyond his essential characteristics, but also to the very attributes which which belong to his deity. And three, that these attributes have not been communicated through an essential effusion or a natural and formal attack, not equating the natures or confusing them, but through the plan of the union, as the figure of the heated iron illustrates so well. All right, massive use of passages, but this chapter... And I've given you a lot of pages on it. This is where the marbles are. Then he's going to talk about in the closing appendices, he's going to talk about Christ present in the church, not according only to his divine nature, but according to both natures. He's going to have a section devoted to the supper. Then he's going to have an appendix that talks about, uh, I think, the state of humiliation. Anyway, we're almost at the end. This one, though. Uh, 24, that's come to you in pieces parts, um, is really the core of the book. That's, that's where you want to ask yourself, is this on or no? Or does he build a g- good case or no? And then you'll do the same thing when he connects it to the supper, where through actual bread, the promise is given uh, of the forgiveness of sins and it has to do with your mouth, huh? Your tongue. Drink this, eat this. He's going to connect those two, or try to, and you'll see whether, uh, whether you think he pulls that off. Okay? That's the future chapters, but there aren't, as I said, very many of them. Yeah, Craig? Uh,
2: Dr. Rosenblatt, I have a question regarding um, the, the supper. And I've noticed a lot of evangelicals don't even use... The words of institution, I think, because they're so powerful, this is. And isn't it more dangerous what the Reformed have done? They actually use those words of institution <laughs> and say, well, actually, this has a spiritual meaning and not a yeah. real material meaning. Yeah, Chemnitz doesn't
1: bother with the Anabaptists of his day. He doesn't even bother. Who's in the crosshairs? The Reformed. And he's going to, in one of the next chapters, say, we better have really, really extensive and good reasons if we're going to depart from what the text actually says. And he's going to argue that against the Reformed. And he's going to say there aren't good enough reasons to justify leaving the plain meaning of the text. You see this later on reflected in Walther. Somebody says to him, what if you find out at the judgment that works were a part of justifying you, that it wasn't just faith in Christ? Walter answers, Then I'll say to God, You misled me with your word. Yo. You may differ on the details, but you sure like the spirit of it, huh? I, I do anyway. You misled me with your word. That's why I did. Uh, it's that same sort of thing. Um, and you may uh, read it and say I'm convinced or you may read it and say I'm not convinced but he's going to have a shot at it. And it's they who started the fight. This is a response to something uh, that they had already made confessional on their side.
2: I wonder if you could comment, uh, Rod, on the uh, power... Of uh, in in our practices, Christians, uh, Lutheran Christians, the power of, of the implication of this, uh, the two natures of Christ, and, oh. and how it impacts our piety and our, you know, our life uh, from birth to death. Yeah,
1: I, I mean it's no <clears throat> it's no secret. We have a view of baptism that has to do with assurance, not just something that you went through. Luther talks about this is daily. All internal answers had failed him. All of them. He knew those were to be suspected. Even stuff about faith. Under pressure, he said, it'll give way. It's not going to hold you. Um, And with regard to the supper, we've seen that, uh, and we'll see it in the future here. Um, the, The alternatives are tragic. That is, when I would find the the dead bodies along the road when I was at Westmont, it usually had to do with how glorious it was all supposed to be, but it wasn't. And there was no place to go. All answers went back to internal. You know, are you reading the scripture enough? How is your prayer life? Is it enough? Is it deep enough, long enough, all of them headed you back and turned you back into yourself again. Luther thought that was awful. But you've got to have an alternative to that too, and we get it here. Look, if, uh, if it'll help heal your conscience, ask your pastor if you can confess to him. Certainly learn more about baptism um, than you've learned from the evangelicals. Uh, Take a look at the Reformation and our branch of it in particular. And what you end up with is that the center of our piety has to do with water being splashed on our heads and us being moved into the kingdom of God from the kingdom of darkness by some water along with the word. And the center of our piety is Will you eat this and believe the promise linked with it? Will you drink this and believe the promise? Uh, This is central to us, and there ain't anything more central. Uh, It's core. And Luther realized it when he was facing all that stuff about assurance. That the others won't do it, and this will. I was amazed at some of the White Horse Inn letters I figure that the evangelicals would just laugh at our view of the supper, but it's exactly the opposite. The letters to the White Horse Inn say, man, I wish we had something that was actually happening at the supper. It's like they're looking over the fence and saying, wow, huh. that I hadn't expected. And you'll even find some who tools say that. They're much more rigorous than the evangelical, uh, but some of the Reformed will recognize that when push comes to shove, there's not much going on, uh, not like you're talking about. So all those things are pretty powerful, pretty powerful. Uh, Westmont also, one of the ones, was uh, simul justus et peccator, is the Christian simultaneously still sinner, yet justified before God, should he die tonight? That was new. That was new. Yeah.
4: Hi, I'm Kelly Faltis, and it's my first time in this class. Good to have you here. Thank you, and my first time reading Chemnitz. So, I just had a quick question. I was wondering if you could explain or how Chemnitz would classify when Christ says... Uh, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you could explain a little bit on how he would touch on the two natures.
1: On that one. On, I on don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll keep my eye out for it. The cry of dereliction from the cross. Um, my guess is that he'll illustrate with it, but won't go too deep because there aren't parallel passages other than the predictions of it in the Old Testament, the prophecies that he will be as if deserted But there aren't a a whole lot of others, so probably it won't be a lot. There, There were within the Trinity, and all we know is the predictions in the Old Testament passages and the report of it in the Gospels, and that's about it. How the second person can be as if deserted by the first person within the Trinity, I haven't the foggiest unless Scripture tells me the details. And I think he probably will treat it that same way, uh, unless I have passages. I don't know. Um, that's my guess. I've had the experience of serving some of the churches you've mentioned, where they emphasize uh, multiple baptisms, uh, multiple decision making, where they they encourage you to Walk approach the, the front aisle. of the church and. Uh, yeah. Be accepted again. Yep. Be I'd born like, again again. I'd like your discussion on that, please. Well, it's, you're, you're put into awful alternatives when there are no sacraments. You know? To, to take those off the board and then try and reshuffle in terms of rededication or doing more or doing it more often. or That's a long ways from here. Take, eat, and then be absolved. You know, Rod, take and eat. This is the true body of Christ, meaning the same body that was crucified. This is the true body of Christ given into death for your sin. Eat. Or take and drink, Rod. This is the true blood of Christ. Same blood shed on the cross. This is the true blood of Christ shed for you and for your sin. Drink. And when you take that away, or the promises concerning baptism, the alternatives are awful. Just absolutely awful. Uh, they become part of the problem instead of part of the answer. Huh? Um, and I found that with InterVarsity again and again and again and again. Because it was all brands of Christians who showed up at the IV meetings. It was usually not Roman Catholics, but all sorts of others, Protestants, and this wasn't part of their upbringing you know and there's a tragedy to that that's really deep Um, some of my Westmont students were, were at the same time frightened by what I was saying and drawn to it if it was biblical and true they were thrown into that and it was sort of like Moses at the Red Sea where it divided the room and half and half were saying, "If this is biblical it 's the greatest thing i 've ever seen or ever heard, and the other half was praying that Rosenblatt would be saved <laughs> So it goes
4: Rod, I have a question
1: yeah Alice with
4: a respon- with questioning the cry from the cross. Could it be the physical nature of Christ, the human nature, crying out to the God nature?
1: Uh, uh, Probably Chemnitz won't talk that way. Mm -hmm. He doesn't want to talk about the natures. The one nature doing this, as Luther said, while the other ran away and did. He probably would rather say, I don't know, than give that. That's what I... I did that as a young pastor. When I was first out here in California, God forgive me, a, a lady asked me about this. And I answered off the cuff and and gave that answer. You know, I started talking about the natures instead of the person, and I gave that answer. I said, that was the human nature of Christ, being derelict and crying out, carrying the sins of the whole world, as if deserted, and so forth. She was satisfied. I was satisfied. And then I found out later, that wasn't a good answer. I would have been better to say, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. This answer that I gave to this young lady back here was not the one I gave in 1969, but I wish it
3: were. Right. Mike? Well, you know, back to the point you made earlier about, you answered some question by saying the evangelicals don't have any sacraments they can go to, and so there's no reassurance there. I I would argue they do have sacraments, it's just God doesn't do anything in them, and so it's worse, right? Because the altar call at that point, I would say that's sacred with an evangelical, yeah. that is yeah. sacrament sacred, right? Yeah. And I would say baby devotion, once a baby is born, you pray over it and, and so forth. Dedicated. There's just nothing that forgives sins and God does nothing. So it's worse than that. They, and they're not biblical either. They, you can't find any scriptures for them
1: yeah. either. Mike's background is uh, Calvary Chapel, so you might like to ask him from the inside uh, how that goes. All right, I'm holding you over. I'm going to stop. Uh, I'll stay here for a bit if you want to ask something afterwards, but I don't want to hold the whole class over. Um, I'll, it might be surprise next time when you come here, depending upon what I'm ordered to do by the pastors, I might be doing something totally disjunct from what we've been doing for weeks. Um, So you might want to call in and say, is he going to do the next chapter or have you got him doing something else? Huh? You're consumers. You have a right to know. (laughs) All right? Enough for the day.
0: All right. (laughs) Fantastic lectures. Great stuff. This is where all the marbles are. Yes, there were lots of marbles in that uh, presentation just a reminder, this is listener-supported radio. You know, go visit our website, click one of the friendly yellow buttons, and uh, partner with us so we can keep doing what we do here and offering this type of top-drawer Christian education here at Fighting for the Faith. All right, so what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. My email address, if you want to contact me and let me know, it's uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ in his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.